Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So the shooting death of the British Columbia RCMP constable adds to the numbers of police officers killed on duty in this country. And it also brings to the fore the issue of what must be done to reduce the risk to police officers. And today is Police and Peace Officers National Memorial Day, with ceremonies and uh, police and families attending from all over this country in Ottawa. Mark Baxter is the president of the Police Association of Ontario. Mark, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Quite a day and a somber day in Ottawa, I would think, today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me today. It's uh, it is a, a somber day today as we added eleven names of you know police heroes who have been killed in the line of duty uh, over the last year. We added eleven names to the wall as well as two historical names today. So it's been um, you know unfortunately one of the longest uh, of these ceremonies that I've that I've been through because we just had so many names to get through. Yeah, and you've had uh, you lost uh, police officers in the province of Ontario as well, a number of them in uh, twenty twenty three. Mark, after the sorrow and the deep sense of loss, what's the reaction after that? What's the response and the reaction of your members, the police officers of the province of Ontario? Yeah, well, I mean, our you know the, our members are angry, and uh, they're you know they're elite, they're going to work every day, and you know we know there are risks associated with with policing, um, but we're seeing an escalation of violence towards police officers in this country like we've never seen in our history before. And, you know, our members leave their house every day. They leave the safety of their families um, behind to go to work to ensure the safety and security of their communities. And they are going there and they're not sure if if they're going to make it home uh, at the end of the day. And that's, that's a really scary thought. Um, but, you know, despite all of everything that's been happening and the attack on law enforcement in this country, you know, thousands of police officers every day in all of our communities still get up, still put on uniform and still go to work to, to keep their community safe. Yeah. You know, I've been in communities where police have uh, not been present for a period of time, like the city of Montreal. I was there when, uh, in, uh, when I was in my late teens and police I had a disagreement with the city administration and, uh, it wasn't a pleasant place to be without the police being present. It really was not a good place to be. When you have to start bringing in the military to police the streets, doesn't look good, doesn't feel good. So has the relationship, do you think, between police and their communities become tenuous, or is it a small group of people, individuals, who are causing the problem, perhaps because of leniency at the court level with bail and such? 
I think that's what it is. I think we've got, um, it's a small group of individuals who, yeah, they're not being held accountable by our current, uh, by our criminal justice system, and they're continually being released when they should be held in custody. And then because they're released, now they're able to commit more offenses, and they're committing violent offenses offenses against our police officers. Um, You know, the other piece of this as well is, you know, the mental health and addiction um, issues that we have going on in our country right now. And we've got um, a lot of people who are, um, a lot of vulnerable people who are in our communities without the proper mental health support and the proper resources to 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 help them to assist them, and then they, that turns oftentimes turns into addiction issues. Again, not proper resources in our communities to address uh, a lot of these addiction issues, and you know, uh, a lot of times it's uh, these these vulnerable people that um, with mental health issues that you know unfortunately are um, becoming engaged in criminal activity and are having. Um, violent uh, confrontations with with our members. Yeah. So when you as a police association, the Police Association of Ontario, or your um, complementary police associations across the country, or the National Police Association, Police um, Canadian Police Association, when you go to provincial governments, or you go to the federal government, and you, you, you have a plan, or you have an objective, and you've thought it out, and you've prepared it, and you make a a proposal to the governments uh, on on how to improve the situation and not have your members at the level of risk they're at now when they go to work. What's the response you get from governments? Well, finally, they're starting to to listen. Um, And unfortunately, it took uh, a really bad year of uh, a lot of tragedies and a lot of police officers killed in the line of duty, particularly for the federal government to start to listen. Um, you know, the Canadian Police Association, uh, which, uh, you know, nearly every police officer uh, in this country is a member of, you know, they, they host, uh, they meet with regularly with um, parliamentarians and with, uh, you know, the ministers here in Ottawa. And for many years, we've been talking about the need for bail reform. We've been talking about um, the need to make some real changes uh, to our criminal justice system. And those calls of gone unanswered. Uh, and it took for uh, these, you know, the deaths of, of the officers last fall. And I think when it really came to a head with uh, Greg Priscilla when he uh, was, was murdered uh, by someone on bail last December. And, and then after that, and some pressure, and of course, you know, the support that um, a law enforcement community across the country received from all their premiers, um, where all the premiers sent a letter in January to the federal government, to the prime minister, and said, we need to do something. Then they started listening. You know, what we've continued to keep the pressure up, and we're going to continue to um, follow um, as the legislation that they have introduced makes its way through the House. Yeah, and when you talk about uh, Officer Pichello, 25 years of age, and all he did was stop to help. If somebody, had, if I remember the incident correctly, there was a vehicle in the ditch, and he stopped his cruiser to try to go and help, and he was shot and killed. Yeah, and you know, it's something that that our members do, you know, every single day. And Constable Shailene Yang in, in Vancouver is an example, right? She's helping yes. at an encampment, yep. um, working with with people with mental health issues, something that she had done for a long time. And um, yeah, and was was stabbed. And so many of the other uh, of the other incidents, right? Members are uh, at work helping their community, doing what they can to keep their community safe, and being attacked. So, Mark, when you talk to your members about uh you know, going out to work and how their families feel about them going out to work because they're doing a job that, you know, not everybody can do, not everybody uh, is willing to do. And, uh, you know, we, we say this many times when the rest of us are running away from a situation, police officers are running 
toward the situation. Mm -hmm. When you talk to your officers about what it's like to go to work and what their families tell them, what do you hear? Uh, anxiety. Um, families are, are concerned when, when their loved one goes to work. You know, there's always been a concern that, you know, when, when their spouse goes to work as a police officer, you know, there's always a fear in the back of their mind that um, they're going to get that, that knock on the door in the middle of the night uh, and be told uh, something really tragic. But we've li lived in a society for so long where, you know, the, the risk was so low. And it is still relatively low, but um, we've just had so much tragedy um, over the last, you know, 13 months um, with now 12 police officers uh, that have been killed at work. Um, so we've, uh, you know, there, there, there's anxiety, but, you know, I think um, a lot of support, right? Lots um, partners whose spouse uh, is a police officer, they understand that it's a calling and they understand um, the reward um, that um, they get by having uh, their loved one out there keeping their community safe. And, and we need police officers to do the job to keep our community safe. Um, so, And if we don't address this, we're going to lose experienced officers who will retire as soon as they can. And I suspect that may, may already be happening. It is happening. We're having some, we're, we're looking at some preliminary data in Ontario at police officers that have left the profession in the last um, five years. And we haven't gone through all the data. We actually were just provided with it on, uh, on Friday, but you know, police officers that have left the profession in the last five years are not leaving at full retirement. They're leaving early um, to go to another, to, to go to another profession or another career. So um, it's something that we're going to continue to, uh, to address. And in Ontario, we're working with the Chiefs Association, um, as well as uh, the Ontario Provincial Police Association and the Toronto Police Association to try and address um, a staffing crisis that we have going on right now. Uh, and we're working with the Ontario government to, to, to address this um, and try and come up with some uh, recruitment initiatives. We would encourage all parents uh, to do just that. Reach out to the teachers, principals, uh, school divisions, and uh, bring that relationship closer so that we can support our children through uh, their formative years and their educational years. Uh, Premier Scott Moe on this program a few weeks ago talking about the Saskatchewan policy that uh, requires teachers and schools to inform parents should children under the 16, under, under 16 years of age, uh, decide on a pronoun change, name change, and gender identification change. That's being challenged in Saskatchewan. It's also being challenged in New Brunswick, which is where the first policy, provincial policy, originated. This is, uh, let me just mention this, of course, Police and Peace Officers National Memorial Day. And uh, with the shooting of the police officer, Constable RCMP, Rick O'Brien, on Friday in uh, British Columbia, we're going to be speaking to both police and uh, family of a um, police officer who was shot and killed on this program today. A lot to cover. Premier Blaine Higgs joins us on the Roy Green Show, the Premier of New Brunswick. Premier, it's been a while. How are you? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Noria. I'm fine. Thanks. It's good to talk to you. Uh, can I just get a thought from you, first of all, if uh, possible, on uh, the Police and Peace Officers National Memorial Day? We're losing a lot of police officers in this country who die on, in the line of duty, and uh, this has to stop. It's tragic, Roy. There's no question about it. And, and you know, what's even more important is the officers that... Uh, 
kind of put their lives at risk for, for others every single day. Um, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've collectively, uh, in premiers, I know in previous meetings, we've, um, you know, we've said uh, stronger sentences as far as uh, um, how the rules are applied and, and, um, and there's, there's rules that are, are too lenient. But also I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's areas of, of crackdown on, on the, certainly drug use and, and things that are causing society to break down in many ways. And, and I think collectively we have to find um, a better way, stronger way to listen and support our officers. Yeah, thank you, Premier. Let me uh, ask you about the policy that uh, you were the first Premier, the first provincial government that enacted a policy that requires schools, teachers, and school boards to contact parents should students uh, decide on a pronoun change and gender identification change. Why did you do that? Well, it's uh, you know it's interesting that this has become such a debate, but it's in today's society that parents shouldn't be informed or have some ability that would be a natural progression to keep parents informed um, in, in regards to raising their children. And and you know the continuity for raising children continues to be with parents, and and you can't have a policy that basically says all parents are unable to guide their children. And and that's kind of where the policy was. Um, and and imagine the difficult position it puts uh, uh, teachers and educators in when parents come into the class and and, and actual materials that uh, would be maybe per, be uh, in the classroom would be removed or changed because um, that parent was not aware of any any situation with their child. And, and so what we put forward is basically. Yes, under 16, that the parents need to be involved, but there's a process. It isn't a matter of outing kids. It's a matter of a process using guidance counselors to, to work with the child, you know, understand the situation at home, and, and find a way that, that parents can be engaged in this. Because, as I said at the beginning, continuity is at home. Continuity is with parents or um, whoever um, is the support group for, for that child in terms of their guardian. And, and that's what it, what it involves. It's quite amazing. That that philosophy of the parent's role within a child's upbringing is balanced in such an aggressive way. You know, I've thought about this a lot, and I can't for the life of me understand why parents have become the enemy um, in some circles or some points of view. And I understand if kids are being maltreated at home, then there has to be intervention. But there are processes in place for that as well. But uh, it really is a huge issue in this country now. There were protests and counter-protests in the past few days, as you know, Premier, and Canadian school boards almost universally have have decided that they're going to engage students' self-identification and gender uh, self-identification without um, consulting parents. It's almost universal across the country already. Well, I think that um, can give you an indication how far it's gone without parents really, really uh, being involved in understanding. And I think what we've seen here, and it's what we, we, we saw in New Brunswick, you know, um, um, parent-teacher, um, our professional development day, where it was advertised what, what, um, what was on the agenda. And, I mean, that really set off some alarm bells of what are kids being taught? I mean, where's the curriculum and, and, and how does this policy work? Um, so that that really brought it to attention in in New Brunswick, and then of course it has spread across the country. But but it's because parents are now becoming engaged and and say you know I want to know, 
And we've also seen an unprecedented, um, you know, enrollment in private schools or, you know, um, school at home. So it's because our public system has decided its own agenda and parents are not um, part of that decision. I mean, I have talked to a lot of parents now and we're getting a lot of, of, uh, you know, people writing letters and and saying, you know, we need to have parental involvement in our child's life. Um, We need to be involved in this. it's, It's just not acceptable that we're not. So, but it isn't acceptable that we we turn this into um, um, you know an aggressive behavior on either side, because having parents um, have the right to raise their kids and have the obligation, because we're the first to hold them accountable if um, if there's a problem you know at home or if the child uh, there's any sort of situation, they require all kinds of parental consent. But here, in one of the most important kind of decisions they might make in their future. Uh, the parents are are being excluded, and I think parents are just kind of getting, um, uh, let's say, attuned to the to what is what is happening. So the 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 um, education councils, you know, they can take whatever position they like, but at the end of the day, the the, the parents will uh, have shown they are now involved. They will be part of this discussion, and 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 we we will not. Um, obviously condone a council that is going against the wishes of the parents and, and against the wishes of the government, because that is not how society works. Yeah, your education councils in New Brunswick are investigating, I understand, suing your government. Uh, so so what's, uh, what's the, the status of that situation, and what is the rule right now in the classrooms and schools in New Brunswick? Well, currently, the, the, the rule is that, you know, it's not a matter of, of when, when a child goes to a, um, an educator and, and says, you know, I'd like to change my name and, and I, I'm considering, a, you know, that I'm, I want to pursue this avenue. Um, it's not a matter that the, we're asking the educator to, to call home, and that, that's not the case at all. We're not asking educators to out the child. We want to continue a safe space, but we want to have the, the child work with the school guidance counselor and to develop a plan where the, the, the parents can be brought into the mix. And, and yes, to your point earlier, there can be situations at home that you really cannot um, cannot have the, the parents, you know, be find this out just, just uh, without appropriate counseling themselves. So so I think the, the, the idea is that it's just uh, you can't leave this up to educators. You shouldn't You shouldn't ignore parents. But we have a process we're putting in place to have the system work, not purposely hide it and make a plan to exclude parents, because that's what it did before. Other provinces are following your lead. Saskatchewan, I spoke with Premier Moe a number of times and his immediate past education minister. We have Ontario, Premier Ford. Uh, considering it, Manitoba similarly. So there's there's an appetite among provincial governments to follow what you're what you've decided to do. Let me ask you this: If the courts in New Brunswick do become involved, and the education councils investigating suing your government, if the courts do become involved, and if they rule against you, would you consider what Premier Mo is considering, and that is using the notwithstanding clause in the charter? Yes, I would consider it, and I mean, obviously, we'd have to have a discussion within our caucus and. And cabinet, but I, I believe that, you know, it's important, it's not important to have a process here where parents play the key role in raising their kids, and um, and it, we have to find a way to do that. And as long as the parents have taken the position and continue to do so, that they want this, this to be clear, uh, I don't think that any government has any choice but to say we need to find a way to allow parents to raise their kids. And you know we're I, I you know believe that parent that uh, families are the foundation of our society, 
and we we often talk or say things about you know our parents taking responsibility or do we have a, um, a delinquent parent that you know that has left a, a spouse in, in the lurch with kids and walked away and we say we can't allow that we we must ensure that there's there's adequate support for children and then on the other hand you have a policy like this that, that does kind of just the opposite so so we um, we will continue to do what's right to support the family and to support parents in their role to raise kids and obviously that that is uh, paramount for age 16 and under Premier, when you were on this program about, I think, three or four years ago, just before Christmas, here's what you said to me. It makes you wonder if, our, if, if Canada is a nation or a notion. And that was after you'd attended your first Premier's conference with Mr. Trudeau in attendance. Are we a nation or are you still concerned that we might just be considering ourselves a notion? I am very concerned still. It, it, you know, we, we have a policy here that the, the numbers just don't add up. The supply of energy under the current uh, philosophy um, of this um, ideology that the, the Prime Minister Trudeau is presenting, is, 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 it, just, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit our ability to, you know, to certainly provide electrical uh, batteries for, for automobiles. It doesn't fit the, the ability to supply the energy and the demands that are required. And, and so my argument has been, you know, if we just would put it together scientifically of what's available. I heard Premier Smith mention um, at the beginning of the show last week, she t- said about, you know, coming to the near of uh, the grid being shut down because of, uh, you know, not the ability to generate power. We had the same thing happen in February where we get um, optional power or a backup power from, from Quebec or a regular bar. They shut us off. First time they'd ever actually shut us off. Fortunately, we had every piece of generating capability going, and um, and we got through it. It was a cold snap we had, and lasted about 48 hours. In that time, our wind, our people say, "Well, the wind's blowing," so really, you know, that's good. At least uh, the windmills are are doing well. And, and on the contrary, when the wind was blowing and it was that cold, uh, blowing as hard as it was, the windmills actually turn away from the wind, and the, the power generation drops. The power generation went from like 160 megawatts down to less than 20. In, in about um, six hours because they couldn't perform in that under those conditions. So then it, it relied on our nuclear, our fossil fuels, and, and to, to kind of save the day. So then you look across the country or you look across into Europe and you say, what's the double standard here that we see that our, our Canada is promoting? Well, we're going to be providing hydrogen. We're going to have clean energy. Um, and in Europe, meanwhile... Um, you know, are, are crying for energy. And when I was over there a few months ago, it, you know, they, we can't believe that an energy-rich country like Canada has not helped our situation a bit. So recently, the, the federal government announced, I think, $600 million or something over three years for support for the, for the Ukrainian government in, in um, you know, fighting against the Russian invasion. And, and certainly we all support that. But the double standard is that the European countries are buying Russian energy and financing that war, when we have the ability to supply energy and offset much of being supplied, or certainly a good part of it, and natural gas would bring that into play, and we have that ability in New Brunswick and across this country. And right, I'd make one point about an energy uh, company in France, uh, Total, whose focus worldwide is to is to commission as many LNG plants as possible to use to shut down coal plants. They say we can have the greatest impact on emission reductions by shutting down coal plants and, and, and converting them to natural gas. 
And here, right in New Brunswick in, or Atlantic Canada, we have four coal plants, and supplied by natural gas could reduce our emissions by 50%. So we have the ability to do that as well as export to Europe. So on the one hand, we send money to, to Ukraine. On the other hand, we finance Russian um, military activities by, by ensuring that they continue to have a market in, in other European countries. So put the facts together. And our policy just doesn't add up federally. No, and we sent the uh, Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan home when they personally came here. And they were looking for a deal for natural gas, like LNG. And the Prime Minister insists there's no business case for this. Well, they wouldn't be here if they didn't believe there was. And I might argue, this is just my opinion, they would, uh, Germany and, and, and Japan, would probably be happy to underwrite the construction of the necessary infrastructure to deliver the LNG to their countries. There's no question about it. I mean, we could sign up. In fact, there were companies that were coming to us when I was there wanted to make a long-term energy deal. We have an LNG plant uh, operated by Repsol in New Brunswick that they were, they were looking at converting to LNG export. It's an import facility today. Their gas supply was coming from either the Midwest or from, uh, from Alberta. And the pipeline tariffs, and the line is limited in size, but it was still big enough with some modifications to actually uh, put a planning commission, about $300 million a day, LNG will go to Europe. The, the, the cost of that throughput for the, the tolling fees on the pipeline were so great um, that uh, TCI, TransCanada Energy, TC, had, had the, the costs were so high that the business case did not work because TCE said, look, we need a guarantee on the last mile. Okay. And what that means is just what happens in Energy East, that the federal government comes in with a policy that shuts them down. Right. Getting through Quebec was another issue. Premier, but, but Quebec, were, the line's already there, and they were willing to, to be part of that discussion. Premier the Higgs, line was already there, not necessary to build a new one. I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to talk to You're you. Welcome. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. In April 2014, Matthew DeGroote attended an end-of-school term party in a home in Calgary's northwest. DeGroote would, in the worst mass killing in Calgary's history, stab to death Katie Paris, Zachariah Rathwell, Jordan Segura, Josh Hunter, and Lawrence Hong, all in their 20s. In 2016, DeGroote was found NCR, not criminally responsible, and found to be living with undiagnosed schizophrenia. He has since been living at the Edmonton, Alberta Hospital and receiving psychiatric treatment. While appearing annually before the Alberta Review Board to have his case and detention assessed, 
In September of last year, the board determined Groot post a, quote, significant risk, end quote, to the public and would not be granted an absolute discharge. Mr. DeGroote is now seeking to have the Supreme Court of Canada hear and consider his case and grant more freedoms. Greg Paris joins us. Mr. Paris is the father of Katie Paris. Greg, thank you for coming on the program. It's been a few years since we spoke. Uh, is what I said correct? In in what fashion, Roy? What was I? Is it is it? Is it correct information? Well, the truth of the matter is uh, DeGroote is not in hospital currently. He hasn't been in the Edmonton psychiatric ward for a couple of years. He's in a very structured group home. Uh, but his review is coming up in November, so we don't know if he's actually still in that structured group home or whether he's been moved to a slightly less structured group home. So the rest of it is is bang on. So, so you're not you're not con- consulted, and you're not informed of what's going on. No, we get the surprise of a lifetime every year at the annual review when the report comes out on his mental status, and we find out his current status in a public forum. So, last September, he's assessed as being a quote significant risk end quote to the public. And it was determined he would not be granted an absolute discharge. Now he's going before the Supreme Court of Canada, or trying to. The Supreme Court has to decide whether or not they'll hear what he has to say. How disturbing, how troubling is that to you? I hope that's not a redundant question. Well, there's there's, there's basically three points here. Um, first of all, if the Supreme Court even chooses to hear his appeal, it's got some far-reaching ramifications for other NCR patients and all their wants in terms of getting earlier and more freedoms. And then secondly, I think it puts into question the entire NCR process and the provincial control on those reviews because, and and more importantly, the decisions that those highly trained legal and medical professionals have, uh, have put forward. And then from the families' points of view, the five families, I mean, we're just exhausted. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it used to be for six years, it was a singular uh, review every year that we would have to get up for and have to present victim impact statements. But in the last two years, he's appealed twice. So now it's biannual. And now you throw in a su- Supreme Court potential challenge, which makes it three things in a year. So you can just imagine all the families uh, react to that. And all five families have been opposed to the NCR designation for DeGroote. Yes, we we have. And I mean, obviously, that's that's maybe a misnomer. Uh, you know, it's been proven by medical professionals that he clearly uh, has a mental illness. What we are, what we are 100% opposed to is him ever being granted uh, an absolute discharge, like someone who's actually killed, uh, butchered five people. Like, you know, a lot of these other cases you're talking about, they're horrendous. And But in most cases, unfortunately, there was only one person killed. Yeah. In this situation, there were five. And, you know, even his own um, medical treatment staff has continued to unabatedly say if he devolves in any way, he it'll be catastrophic. He will kill everyone in his sphere because of the paranoia that he has when he's not fully medicated. 
Have the courts in Alberta been involved so far in his case? Oh, yeah. T- two years in a row, he's gone to the uh, Alberta Court of Appeals. So, you know, the bizarre thing about this whole process is the we're, we're told over and over emphatically that the NCR process is not a court system. It's meant to be non-adversarial. And, uh, you know, there are a number of rules, as Carol Dedelli pointed out, as far as what the victims can say. But as soon as there's some uh, question on behalf of the patient that they're not getting a fair deal, it goes to the court system. So it changes 100% and goes directly into the court. So, you know, uh, this year the Court of Appeal soundly rejected all of the points that they made in terms of him being treated unfairly. And, you know, they basically said it was all based on a lack of facts and actual just innuendo and, and just, you know, grasping at straws, basically. So it was resoundingly defeated. So we're kind of surprised they're, they're trying to go to the Supreme Court at this point. There was a case in, uh, in Quebec, Greg, where a cardiologist, you're likely aware of this, stabbed yeah. to death his two little children. And he was then deemed to be NCR, and he was receiving treatment, quote-unquote. And then he gave an interview, and he said that his objective when he was released was to regain his medical license, get married, and have children again. And uh, that was of interest to, as I remember, to a prosecutor. And the prosecutor brought forward an objection to the NCR decision. And the courts in Quebec, or the, well, the federal courts, they decided that, yes, indeed, um, the cardiologist should be tried in court again, and this time he should be tried for first-degree murder. And he was convicted, and he's spending at least 25 years in prison. So the NCR designation is not without its very serious issues. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. How are you doing? Really? How are, how are you? How are all the families doing? How do you hold up with this, this tension, this stress, the loss of your children? And this is an ongoing issue. How, how do you hold up? Uh, you know, most of the time uh, you, you try your hardest um, to move forward. And uh, you enjoy your, if you're lucky enough to have other children you enjoy them and, and subsequently the grandkids that come along. Yeah. But every time this rears its ugly head, now three times in 2023, uh, you spiral backwards. And it takes weeks, sometimes months, to come out of it. And um, you have to come out of it in order to survive. When men ignore health warnings, and in this case, symptoms of prostate health issues, it can and does lead to metastasized prostate cancer if you ignore it long enough. Metastasized prostate cancer is immediately classified as stage four, and that's my reality, diagnosed in February of this year. I actually talked about the stage four aspect of it for the first time yesterday. There are remarkable and effective, very new, and significantly life-extending medical treatments available, with more in the pipeline. Now, for Todd Seals, and you'll find him at toddseals63.blogspot.com, 
At age 42, diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic prostate cancer and given just months to live, this was well before the newest drugs became available. 17 years later, Todd is very much alive. And while the cancer remains a threat, Todd Seals has become a much-talked-about and written-about survivor, motivator, as well as contributor to U.S. World and News Report. I had an opportunity to get to know Todd, and then I spoke with him. On Thursday, we recorded the conversation, and I want you to hear what went on. It's going to take up most of this hour. It's not all, it's not all dark. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of humor in this as well. Have a listen. Todd, firstly, it's uh, really important that you're on the air with me on uh, on this radio program. You and I, I think, have become friends, good friends, over the last couple of months, certainly weeks. We've had lots of personal conversations, long conversations on the phone, and I thank you for everything that you've done for me. And I know that our listeners, particularly the men who are struggling with prostate cancer or metastasized prostate cancer, are going to get a lot out of this. Um, you and I are living with the same prostate cancer issues, metastasis, and at stage four. My listeners have he- are hearing this for the first time, that my cancer is at stage four. Uh, you, were, you were given months, only months to live in 2007, and you are 42 years of age. What were your symptoms before the diagnosis? How, how, did, you, how, how did you find out? Oh, well, you know, at 42, uh, you're, you're never really looking you know, for, uh, for prostate cancer. I, I mean, I thought it was an old man's disease. Uh, I was wrong, <laughs> but, um, you know, in hindsight, I can say, yeah, there were, there were subtle side effects. Um, but nothing that you'd really pick right up on, um, as, as being an issue. I mean, other than, than age, um, I would have a weak urine stream, particularly in the mornings while I'm 42 years old. I'm kind of used to that anyway. Uh, it wasn't until I started urinating blood that I realized that I had an issue. Um, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm a mechanic, uh, or I was a mechanic. Uh, I, I have, you know, I have to be crawling into really tight positions. So, you know, I developed sciatica about a year prior to that. And, uh, and as it turns out, that was a symptom because once I started treatment, the pain went away, but you know, you just don't know. And, and so you have to, you have to be aware of your own, your own health. I guess you have to be in tune with your body and, and listen to it. And as guys, we're, we're really prone to just shrugging stuff off. We never even give it a thought, you know, yep. I go to work with bloody knuckles and stitches and it, and it, and it's okay. So uh, we need to, in one aspect, be more like women in, in the aspect that we need to listen to our bodies. Yes, we do. You know, I did the same thing. I've, I've mentioned this on the air. I've spoken about this on the air. Well, I had a urine um, stream that was getting weaker and weaker, and I just wrote it off as being you know, part of aging and made all sorts of excuses, didn't bother to have it checked out. And the next thing I know, I've got this um, prostate cancer and metastasis going on. Uh, how, did you, uh, how did you react to the news when they, when they told you? I know because we've talked and I read the lengthy piece about you in Men's Health magazine in 2019. But what do you, what do you remember about your reaction to the news? And they particularly only give you months to live. 
Well, God, it's been a long time. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, that's good. That's the, the, There's some context to that. You know, if you can get to the stage where you say, geez, I don't really don't remember. It's been a long time. We want to hear that from, from, from cancer patients. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's been 17 years. Fantastic. Um, 17 years that, I, that I've lived with, you know, metastatic prostate cancer. And for the last uh, 12 years, it's been uh, uh, hormone refractory, uh, uh, you know, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's, It has so many different names, but basically, you know, my cancer no longer responded to hormone therapy. But to get back to your original question, I think I was like most men. I was, I was in shock. I was in disbelief. Um, you know, normally you get called into a doctor's office and uh, they sit you down and, and they tell you what's what. And, and, you know, at least you're sitting down. <laughs> at least you have your doctor there. Yeah. Um, I found out on a phone call. Oh, my. Uh, I was actually at work when my primary care provider called me and, and he let me know, he said, but you know, to, to his, you know, not to discredit him because he is an amazing doctor, but we knew something was wrong. Something was seriously wrong. Uh, I had nine months previous to that. I had gone to the hospital because I had pneumonia and they had done a chest x-ray, you know, standard for diagnosing pneumonia. And the, the radiation tech said, or the doctor, after he read the scans, uh, or read the screens, the slides, whatever the heck they are, <laughs> he, uh, he said, look, you know, you've got this little nodule here and, and it's a pulmonary, you know, it could be a pulmonary embolism. They're very common, but, um, you really should have it checked, you know, after you've recovered from this spout of pneumonia. And all my male brains heard was, Probably nothing. <laughs> That's very right. Common. I hear you. Well, I hear you. Or not pulmonary <laughs> embolism, a nodule, pulmonary yeah. nodule. I yeah. don't want to. I don't want to say it's a blood clot. It was a pulmonary nodule. That sounds sounds common. sounds so. sounds like something you can just ignore, doesn't it? Just for a guy. It sounds like something you probably shouldn't ignore, but you shouldn't. But, but I you did. but you can because yeah. you're a guy. Yeah. So at that time, I went to my to my doctor. Um, when I had went in for, for, uh, for blood in my urine and it wasn't just a little bit, um, I, I was urinating blood and, uh, and I told my primary care provider about that event that had occurred and, uh, nine months previous. And he was very angry. He says, you never had it checked. Oh, no, he said, it's probably nothing. And so he, he sent me for a chest x-ray. Well, when my, uh, chest x-ray came back, um, my lungs were covered, um, with prostate cancer, uh, nodules. Oh my goodness. Um, so you can look at, you can think maybe Chester cheetah, the, the mascot for Cheetos, um, how he's got all of his spots. Well, that's kind of how my slides look. And, uh, that's her, my films. That's how my films looked. And so he sent me down for a blood test. And when it came back, my PSA was over 3,200. Oh, uh, wow. 
and 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 so the next oh. um several months you know it was it was just more bad news after more bad news when you do bone scans and ct scans and and uh and so you asked me how i felt um overwhelmed yeah overwhelmed like um ripped off i felt so ripped off yeah i know i had just really gotten my life back on track after uh well after uh after personal issues um basically ended my life in in a lot of aspects i mean to be honest i didn't care for a while if i was to check out or not mm-hmm. and but i had just gotten my life together um man i'd met someone uh I I mean everything was coming back on track and uh and so it was really a good time except for this diagnosis. But what I didn't realize at the time was this diagnosis was going to be one of the most significant significant best things that ever happened to me. This diagnosis changed my life. This diagnosis showed me what was important. It showed me that every day is a gift. And, and you know, when you're, when you're immortal, like I was a week previous to that, uh, I didn't have a care in the world. I could waste as much time as I wanted to waste. There was always tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then you get this diagnosis, and all of a sudden, maybe you don't have tomorrow. And you look at today and go, God, it's a nice day. You know, and, and you start seeing people differently and you see yourself differently. And I guess I took the advice of Tim McGraw when he wrote the song, Live Like You Were Dying. You know, course, I, was listen- I, I, was listening, I was listening to that song this morning. It's a, it's a great song. Yeah, it is a great I'm song. never going to get on a bull. I, I just tell you that right <laughs> no, now. No, because there you... are only two kinds of crazy, <laughs> and one of them is getting on a bull. <laughs> Not with an enlarged prostate, you don't get on a bull. <laughs> hey, Todd, uh, I, I want to talk about the lady who played an amazing part and plays an amazing part in your life in just a second, but your treatment has been complicated. And because while medications can turn the cancer docile, which is my case now, it does eventually figure out a way around the blocks the medications put in place. It must have been so difficult to deal with improvement and then the cancer coming back again, different treatments. What was that like for you? Um, wow. You know, the first, I did pretty good for the first, I don't know, four years. I, they started me with ADT2, so androgen deprivation therapy with Lupron and Casodex, or commonly referred to as bicalutamide. Um, so I, it was standard. It was standard um, treatment for metastatic prostate cancer, mostly because it was all they had at the time. Uh, they had Lupron. There was some some old treatments out there that that um, may. May or may not have worked, but at the time they didn't really work any better than the Lupron. Um, they would be more like a sidestep if if the cancer had found a way around the 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 androgen blockade, then you could throw a different androgen at it and it would knock it back up, you know, knock it back a step or whatever. But all they had other than that at the time was uh, 
was the chemotherapy. So um, I started with the with the androgen deprivation, and and it worked really good for three and a half years, and then when it's the cancer, when the PSA started to creep back up again, they took me off of the casodex. Um, and, and that knocked the cancer back a step as well. Um, 18 months later, it was, it was coming around again. My PSA was rising and I want to think about this for a second. I just want to pause for a second. Um, Science had been in the process of 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 new medications. Um, you know, prostate cancer was getting a lot of attention at the time, uh, both through uh, the Prostate Cancer Research Project and also, uh, you know, through the National Cancer Institute. There was a lot of money being thrown at it, and there were several. Uh, new treatments that were basically coming out the pipe all at the same time within within a year of each other. And, you know, for prostate cancer medications to have three coming out in a year, that's basically at the same time. Um, Extandi, Zytiga, and there was, a, there was a therapy coming out that was really new. Uh, it was, it was different. Uh, it was called Provenge and it was what they called the first cancer vaccine. And, and I guess in the truest sense of the word, yes, it, it, it's a vaccine. Um, but I was intrigued. Uh, cancer had already caused me to change my entire life. Uh, the way I eat, um, the way I, the way I uh, approach every day. Um, and, and I had felt good for five years. Now my PSA is climbing up. And because Provenge was basically the first one to be um, FDA approved, and Zytiga was real close. I think they were in committee at the time, and everybody knew it was going to get approved. Um, I really wanted to go for Provenge, and I had hard time getting that medication, um, I had to fight for it, but I believed in it. And, and I, and I just felt like having my immune system fired up and in the fight, um, you know, would probably be paramount to anything that followed. So, um, I fought for it and, and I ultimately, it took like 10 months, but ultimately I was awarded Provenge therapy, and I received it in May of 2012. Um, so when we were done, when I was done on my on my final uh, my final infusion day, uh, <laughs> I bought a boat. <laughs> good for you! I, I told I my love wife, this story. Honey, this honey, is I so good. You know, I have to say this: what you're what you're doing, this conversation we're having now, is kind of like the conversations we've had privately. And I find it inspiring, living with what I have. And they're telling me, you know, you've got some years, and then we have new meds coming down the pipe, and they'll extend your life beyond that, and I appreciate that. But when you make a decision that goes beyond the time frame that most people would consider reasonable, like, I'm going to buy a boat, 
Yeah, I have uh, metastatic <laughs> prostate cancer. It's stage four. In 2007, they gave me a few months to live, but now I'm buying a boat. I love that story. It's just inspiring. Did you know how to drive well, a boat? Oh, yeah. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm boat. just joking. Uh, I could just never afford one. Yeah, yeah. And technically, I couldn't afford it, but the bank could. <laughs> You know what? But technically, you know, the thing is, is we have to. Yeah. We have to give ourselves a reason to live. Yes, sir. Emotion plays. We have a major to have part. a reason to live. So, can I stop yeah. you right there for a second? Yeah. Because when you say you have to have a reason to live, that makes me want to ask you about your wife. Because I know, <laughs> I know, I know personally from conversations with you. But please share it with our listeners across this country and beyond. Tell us about your wife. Oh, God, I hate her. <laughs> and and I mean that really in all jest. Um, Amanda and I had met about a year prior to my diagnosis. And, uh, you know, she was, she was a little younger than me. So I have to admit it, you know, for a while it was like, God, is this weird or not? But it didn't matter. I mean, I guess age is just, really is just a number. Um, we, it, it's like we were just two halves of the same coin. Um, we completed each other in, in every way. Um, we were, we were passionate. We were head over heels in love. And by golly, a year later, I, I get diagnosed with this disease. And Come on, we've got metastatic cancer. We prostate cancer. We know things are going to change. Um, so I was just like, you know, sweetheart, you didn't sign up for this. You know, this isn't going to be a fun ride. You, you can get out, and she wouldn't hear any of it. She, she wouldn't hear a word of it. Um, she went out and she bought me a kayak, and then she went out and she bought me a. Uh, a bicycle <laughs> she made me use them <laughs> but the thing is 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 she was it was everything i needed at yeah. the time and and i didn't even know it but she did yeah. and and she's always just had that intuition where she knows what i need before i need it um going out um when you're on androgen deprivation uh i just call it hormones so when you're on hormones Things are messed up. I, I mean, it's just messed up. Your your body doesn't work well. You're tired. My God, you get so tired. Some people deal with severe depression, uh, weight gain, hot flashes, moody uh, mood swings. Uh, God, I mean, I used to be able to uh, watch chick flicks and action movies with equal enthusiasm. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> I was messed up. Oh, man, you're too much. <laughs> she got me out there every day. Let's, Wonderful honey, lady. Let's go for a hike. Let's, let's go for a bicycle ride. Let's, yeah. Let, you know, and this is between, you know, you and your doctors. I recommend finding a really comfortable seat if this is an avenue you want to approach. But, um, you know, she was just, she was crucial I believe, I believe my wife was crucial 
in my success to date against this disease because she has daily shown me how beautiful life can be. If only we just open up our eyes and see it. Um, <laughs> seeing the world through my wife's eyes made it all new again. Uh, all this of that wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful so. to hear. I, I know how, from our conversations, how important your wife is to you. Now, another aspect to this is men supporting men. So we are not very good, as we pointed out, at following up on symptoms because we know it's all just temporary. We'll heal ourselves. We don't want to share anything with anybody. I'm okay. Don't bother me. That was my attitude. I'm okay. Don't bother me. I'm fine. But you, <laughs> I wish that was exactly the way I said yeah, it. Yeah, you are. I'm yeah, you are. fine. You're fine. My friend, my friend Cynthia said to me, so she came over to talk to me when I was, I was about three days away from being rushed to the hospital in, in the ER where they didn't think I was going to survive the day. And I, I, during our conversation, she said, you said to me, I don't remember any of this, but she said, I said, why are you questioning me? Why are you in, in what's the inquisition about? And, and I had gone, I had gotten so far that I wasn't even aware anymore of what was going on, but I didn't have the wherewithal to ask for help, Todd. And that's what's, what a lot of guys find themselves in. But you've been telling me about a group of men who've gotten together, you found out about, and it's a, it's a support group uh, of men. And you get together on, on an annual trip, and I'm going on the next one. So how <laughs> I know you're going to New Orleans, and so I'm going to New Orleans with you. What's the, <laughs> <laughs> How important is the male support um, availability when you have this disease? Or I would imagine any other serious disease that is threatening your life. Um, well, you know, we need a community. Um, and we don't know it because most of the time we pretend that we can just be the lone wolf. But... Uh, we we need a community. Um, nobody can understand what they're, what we as men are going through during the course of dealing with this disease better than men who who are going through exactly what you're going through and and are willing to look at it with humor and humility. Um, it's it's paramount that you have that in your life. You, without it, you can go crazy. Um, I actually, you know, I found these guys just Googling at work one night when I had some downtime. I was on graveyard shift. It was two in the morning and I typed into Google, how long am I going to live with the stage four prostate cancer? Because they'd already told me I had a year or less. And, uh, and this, this forum, this, uh, this patient-to-patient -patient forum popped up on the screen uh, in the search engine, uh, healingwell.com, prostate cancer. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, all the other stuff I've read is negative. Maybe I'll just click on this. And I typed in, how long am I going to live with metastatic prostate cancer? And I had like 10 replies in five minutes. And all of them were like, 
positive and uplifting and man, sorry you, uh, sorry that you've got this disease, but man, we're really glad you found it. And these guys became an extended portion of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, one, somebody said, Hey, we should all get together. We should meet. And it, it happened and it was amazing. And our wives go, I, I mean, they have a ladies day and, and, uh, we hold a meeting with it. So we just get together. It used to be twice a year, but some, some of us are getting older and that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, no, it isn't. So it, it, it's, it's annual now. And typically it's one year in New York and then one year in, uh, in uh, in uh, New Orleans, okay. or actually, uh, that's closer to uh, Baton Rouge, but well, um, it's it's a little place called Burley. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a very big place, <laughs> but you know, we spend a few days in New Orleans when we go down there, and uh, and then we go to our get together. Um, it's called GFMPH, and if you ever want to know what that stands for, it's good for my prostate health. And it goes something like this. Gosh, honey, I really think a boat would be good for my prostate health. <laughs> because if you have to have this disease, you might as well get something out of it. <laughs> you are just, you know what? I just feel like I have a brother in arms. Honest to God, I really do. I'm so glad I met you. Now, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to meet you in person in Nolans next year now. Todd, you okay. s- you've said to me, keep your sense of humor, keep laughing, keep enjoying life. And you do that. You're a musician, a hunter, a fisherman, a boater, an adventurer. So that's so critically important. You and I have had those conversations. So what is your message? This is my final question for you. What's your message to men who are experiencing prostate health issues, like not being able to urinate properly or at all? which was my case for far too long, or men who are dealing with other symptoms for other illnesses and are doing nothing about it. What's the message from you? You were given months to live, what, 17 years ago. What's the message? My, my message to men would be to listen to your body and realize that, let me rephrase this. Men. Doggone it. This is, this is what, this, this, this kind of happens to me sometimes. I think I call it Lupron brain, but my message to men would be listen to your body and, and see the doctor. Um, men are getting cancer younger, prostate cancer younger. And when you're diagnosed at a younger age, when you still think you're Superman, uh, it's usually more aggressive. It, It spreads faster. It's harder to treat. But if it's caught early, it's it's ninety nine point nine percent curable, or some, you know, if it's just caught early enough, they can. You're very curable. But once it's got to this point, once you haven't listened to your body, once you've let things go, and you get to this point, well, thank God it's they've made it into. For many men, they've made it into a chronic disease where. We can still live a long time and hopefully live a good life, but listen to your body early. Get cured 
but you still can. Yeah. Todd Seals, we're lucky to have you. I'm lucky to have you in my life. And all the men listening to this program are lucky to have you in their lives. And I'll tell them where to get started. If you go to menshealth.com and you look up uh, the title, How Todd Seals Overcame a Prostate Cancer Death Sentence. That's where I began. That's how I found Todd. How Todd Seals Overcame a Prostate Cancer Death Sentence. It's a tremendous piece. Todd, thank you very much. We'll talk again, you and I, privately. And uh, book me in New Orleans for next year. I'm going to be there, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. Um, can I plug my blog? Yes, please do. Okay, I, I, I do write a blog. Um, I haven't been active for a while, uh, simply because I've grown complacent. I mean, let's face it, things are going well. Um, but it's at uh, uh, toddseal63.blogspot.com, and it's living with stage four prostate cancer. Um, I've been keeping keeping it for a few years now, and uh, and you know, I, it's good that I don't have anything to write about these days. But there is a lot of information there. Okay, toddseal63 at blogspot.com. Got it. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Todd, for today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 